Welcome back to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. This is your, I guess, part of your daily, weekly meditation practice, a place where we explore a very broad understanding of what practice can be, from the quieter style sitting practices to more engaged out in life slash work slash reality practices. <laughs> we do this in real time together, all of us, Tash and I, lending our nervous system to the experiment and then trying to articulate where it is we went and have a discussion about these things with the practice kind of still lingering inside us. So that's the idea. My name is Jeff Warren. My co-host is Tasha Schumann. Hello. Who is our explorer in residence today? Our guest today is Valerie Mason-John, also known as Vimala Sara, a UK-based mindfulness teacher, public speaker, and author, and also just a total force of nature. So a few years back, I got a chance to meet Valerie and learn from them. I did a teacher training in a modality that they designed called Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery. And I hadn't known them before. And it was just this amazing opportunity to kind of be thwapped about the head with self-love. <laughs> you know, so many times you meet teachers that are like, okay, sit and just love yourself. And I don't respond very well to that. I'm a very high energy person. And, you know, to me, a teacher that can come in and kind of be like, sit down and love yourself <laughs> was really, really transformative. So I felt very empowered by Vimala Sara, very, very fierce, loving character, and really happy to have him on the show today. Yeah, so we jump right into this self-compassion practice. It's 15 minutes long. You can do it seated or lying down. Vimala Sara calls it the five basic needs of the heart. And afterwards, we get into a really good discussion about, I guess, the reality of today's situation, the stresses of living with coronavirus, the trauma of living with institutional racism and violence, and how these situations kind of disconnect us from our body. And what does it mean to actually come home to our bodies, come home to ourselves? Okay, so here we go. So today we're welcoming Valerie. And do you want to tell us a little bit about the practice that you want to give to us today? Yeah, today I thought I would offer a practice that I developed myself called the five basic needs of the heart. And the reason why I'm offering this practice today is because there is so much trauma out there in the world at the moment, all around the world. There's so much trauma. So many people are activated, be it that they live in a war zone or they're living with the pandemic of the coronavirus, COVID-19, or the pandemic of racism. There's just so much happening out there. And it's so easy for us to go into a version, not to like ourselves. So this practice really is to cultivate uh kindness and friendliness towards ourselves yeah sounds good beautiful okay so um shall we begin yeah i'm ready i'm ready so it's like a meditation reflection so just settle yeah settle into your body allow the mind to drop into the heart mind heart is one and uh when we get activated, mind and heart become quite separate and other. So just have the sense of the mind dropping into the heart and perhaps place your hand on your heart. And then have the sense of your body settling on your feet or on your sitting bones. The five basic needs of the heart. Attention. Paying attention to your beautiful body. Yes, your beautiful, unique body. And if there's a voice saying, my body isn't beautiful, then just ask that voice to relax and step aside so that you can just be with this beauty of the body, this body that carries you around 24 7 so paying attention to the body and when we pay attention to the body it's simply becoming aware of your own unique beautiful body and we do this by simply becoming aware of what the body 
is touching. So you could even just notice my voice touching your ears. Notice clothing touching the body. Just notice your hands. What are your hands touching? They're touching the chair or your lap. And then, of course, the air is most probably touching your hands too. If you have headphones on or earbuds in, just notice the earbuds or headphones touching your ears. So I'm just going to leave you for the next minute to simply pay attention to your body in your own unique way. Affection, cultivating affection towards the self. Affection is an aspect of compassion. When love meets kindness, affection, compassion flows. So I'm inviting you to really see if you can see yourself in your mind's eye. Just really see if you can see yourself in your mind's eye. And if there's resistance, that's natural. Many of you may have some resistance. So just ask the resistance to relax, the resistance to Step aside so that you can just give yourself three minutes of affection, of compassion towards the self. So I'm inviting you to look at the self with warm, friendly eyes. Have a sense of just looking at yourself with warm, friendly eyes. Just imagine if you were looking at a newborn, a newborn being, a a newborn puppy, a newborn kitten, a newborn baby, and you were holding this newborn in your arms. There'll be a smile on your face. So just have the sense of looking at a newborn. This newborn is you. Yes, looking at yourself with affection. And if it really is dysregulating, place a hand on your heart to regulate yourself as you sit. Just feeling affection, compassion in the body. Appreciation, cultivating 
appreciation towards the self. The fact that you're here simply listening to this reflective meditation means that you put aside things so that you could actually be here and listen. There's so many things that can get in the way of hijacking our time for ourselves. And you made it here to listen. So appreciate yourself for that. Really have some appreciation towards the self. And again, if there's resistance, if there is this chatter, sabotaging this time for you, just ask it. You step aside just for a minute or two. You can always come back. Just relax while I allow myself to absorb appreciation and really see if you can feel what appreciation feels like in the body. Really see if you can touch into the sensations of appreciation, appreciating yourself. We can appreciate our life force, appreciate the the breath, the inhale, the exhale that keeps us going despite all the difficulties in life. Here we are. So just sitting with appreciation for this unique, beautiful body and this unique gift of the inhale, the exhale. Acceptance, cultivating acceptance. Acceptance is in the now. So often we live in the past, we live in the future. It creates misery. We need to learn to live in the now. Really see if you can direct the mind into this moment now, here with me, listening to this reflective meditation. Allow yourself this secluded spot, this secluded time for you where you can let go of any responsibilities from the past or the future and just be here now with me. Now, 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 now. Acceptance is in the now. There may be but, 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 just ask the but, but, buts to step aside and relax so that you can be here now, right here now, listening to this reflective practice, acceptance, cultivating acceptance towards the self now. And again, what does acceptance feel like in the body? 
You may experience it as discomfort, as unpleasant. That's okay. And some of you may experience it as pleasant. That's okay. This is your unique experience. So just turn towards the body. The now, the present moment is here in the body. Acceptance. Allowing, just allowing anything to arise. And we do this by staying sitting on the bleachers, on the bench. So we may experience thoughts and narrative arising. And we just watch instead of getting off the bleachers, off the benches, onto the court of our life and engaging with these thoughts, with the drama, with the narrative. Yeah. That causes us misery. We can just stay sitting on the bleachers, on the bench, and just allowing thoughts to arise and cease. Just as a kid, blowing a bubble and the bubble gets bigger and bigger and bigger pop and it pops into nothingness this is the same with our thoughts they can get bigger and bigger and bigger and pop just into nothingness and this can only happen if we stay sitting on the bleachers, on the bench, just watching our thoughts and narrative and thinking arising and ceasing, allowing. So, gently opening your eyes or stretching and just, just noting what you're experiencing right now. Okay, back over to Tasha and Jeff. Coming out of that one slowly. Jeff, do you, would you like to unpack your journey? Well, I was extremely regulating. I needed that actually. I had a kind of a wild morning with my little little guy and, and I just was very a bit activated. I hadn't even realized it until I went in and so I could feel the whole nervous system just settling. And then the permission uh Valerie that you gave us, you know, to I mean it just kept building actually because I love this the order. You know, the sort of neutral attention and then the beginning of finding some affection. And for me, it really helped to actually have the hand on the heart. I feel it's much mm -hmm. easier to kind of connect to that through the actual touch. 
you kind of feel it in the hands. And then this appreciation piece was, which felt even more, um, uh, more active. It felt more, there's, there was a difference between the affection and the appreciation, which I'd never, for myself, I felt them, I experienced them as being slightly different. There was something more active and uh, deeper about the appreciation. Yeah, it felt like it was a, trying to connect to the particulars of who I was and saying, hey, that's okay. Uh, as opposed to a kind of blanket affection, it was appreciating the, the details. I mean, your voice is so supportive. <laughs> and then now, and then now I was like, okay. And then I just was like, I can just actually forget about what I'm going to say later. I can just forget about this going well or all the things I've felt, you know, you feel you carry when you're doing one of these. I just really let them go. And so I'm very appreciative. I can so see the value of a practice like this, both as a place to get to, to help people arrive to, but also as a place to begin doing some really, some, some other work too. So I'm curious to ask you about that, but that would be my, my little uh, travel report. Much appreciated. Thank you. And for me, I, I had much of the same experience. I really, I've done this meditation before. I was in um, Vimala Sara's teacher training for the uh, mindfulness-based addiction recovery. And it was the first time we did this. And I remember then just feeling really held, A, by your voice, but even just the structure of the meditation. As a person who I do a lot of, you know, free-form meditation and like quite wide open spaces. And just having that structure, I found allowed me to relax into it even more and accept even more. And one thing that I really liked, especially is for each one of the five, there was the inviting that voice just to step aside, even just for a, one minute, you know, just step aside, you can come back later. It feels like it gives me a certain agency in my meditation. You know, sometimes it's just like, okay, sit there and watch everything. And there's a sense sometimes that you can be overwhelmed or you get bowled over by the intensity of thoughts of thoughts. And just having that brief little bit of agency to say, you know, I can ask you to step aside while I just experience this, even just for a moment. So I found that really effective. And the holding like a baby, you know, like looking at yourself like a baby, the level of open heartedness was almost too much. It was like I could feel it in stark relief against how hard I am on myself sometimes. And just the heart opening at that moment for me was like quite intense and really, really quite beautiful. Um, and then just in the acceptance, I mean, we've, you know, we've all done kind of the sit and watch the thoughts before, but Jeff, like you said, like having the repetitive now, 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 kind of just like a chiming bell and so rhythmic that I didn't have to do anything. I was just following the instructions and just in the now in a very effective and immediate way. So for me, it was like, you know, we do so many different kind of meditations where you touch into your heart. And sometimes sometimes you need a little bit more to get there because it, it is difficult to give yourself that. So, yeah, this one was very heart opening and very grounding for me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to hear both your experiences. And uh, a young child definitely is practice, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> When you guide uh, students in this and people that you're working with, do you have a, an intention in your in your mind when you start or an, an intention of something you're hoping for? And I'm curious, the, the kinds of reports that people give you, uh, is there a direction that they head in or what have you noticed? Well, um, the intention of this particular practice, and firstly, I do want to say that these five basic needs of the heart I didn't come up with these five concepts. There are several books which talk about the five basic needs of the heart. And for me, it was like, oh, let me take these five basic needs of the heart and create a meditation. And for me, the intention is that one of the first most empowering, enabling meditations was the practice of the metta bhavna, the practice of loving kindness or Maitri Bhavna, unlimited friendliness. And this practice is in five stages. And the first stage is yourself. And it's incredibly difficult to give yourself loving kindness, especially if you're somebody who's just walked off the streets into a meditation center and you're told to sit down and give yourself loving kindness. And in fact, this practice sometimes has six stages. There's a stage called the benefactor stage because it's been so incredibly difficult for people to give themselves 
loving kindness. And so for me, because I struggled with that first stage for so long, I really wanted to create a practice to really help with this first stage. So you could really see that the five basic needs of the heart is really unpacking the first stage of this practice of loving kindness. And I'll also say, actually, one of the reasons or another reason why I created this meditation was because many years ago, Deepak Chopra, when he first launched the 21 Meditations, you know, and and really took meditation out into the mainstream. And there was this practice of the four basic needs of the heart, and it would just be attention, attention, you know, appreciation, appreciation, affection, affection, and acceptance. And the guidance in that was, is that Deepak Chopra had said that it was really important for people to give us attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. And I can remember listening to this and having a real visceral sensation in my body. And I was like, I disagree with you. <laughs> I, know I, know feeling, yeah. I know you're Deepak Chopra, but I disagree with you. And <laughs> the thing is, is that I had downloaded these meditations. So I was able to go back and listen. And that's what he said. He may say something very different now. And for me, I was very clear. No, you know, so many people, you know, people in recovery, so many people give them affection and appreciation and attention and acceptance. And do they get recovery? No. You know, we need to be able to give it to ourselves. This is the whole thing that we are so hungry for this. We have to learn to give it to ourselves because it's never enough when it comes from somebody else. We have to learn to give it to ourselves. And it's a cherry on the pie if somebody gives it to us. So this is the intention of the practice is to really learn to love and like ourselves. Yeah, that's the intention. In answer to your question, so many people have said, I didn't know it was okay to love myself. I didn't know it was okay to give myself affection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, it was very strong in the in the meditation at the acceptance part, you know, because it's the one time where, you know, it's, it's now. And so there's no crawling towards the future or trying to be better or anything. It's just sitting in whatever is, no matter what that is. And that can be very difficult sometimes. I mean, if it's when it's blissful, it's kind of easy. You want to you want to revel in it. But when it's uncomfortable and, you know, there's shades of uncomfortableness, you know, I think we're very, very, very good at, uh, you know, becoming disembodied and becoming future oriented or past oriented. And just that coming back to exactly how it is right now, there's so much love in it, but, you know, but it's like, it's, it's tough love for yourself, kind of just be here, you know. It makes me wonder about the progression of this kind of healing, that it takes, there's a certain amount of work, you know, to start to get over that hump of learning how to actually begin to treat yourself well. And I, you know, I wonder as when you're working with people, is there, you know, a sequence where maybe you start with sort of allowing and then there's a period where you have to work with the voices or the patterns that are, I know for some of us, I mean, for me, when I started doing these kinds of practices, I could not just turn on the switch. You know, I felt there was so much stuff in the way. There was a kind of clearing that I had to do first to be able to access some of that, some of the deeper accepting and some of the genuine affection. And so I'm just kind of curious if you've seen that or how you how you think about that healing, like if, is there a larger work that you are involved in around that? How I respond uh, to that question is, is that so many people are out there teaching meditation, okay? But yet they haven't been taught to teach meditation. And those of you who are listening, perhaps those people who are teaching meditation and you haven't been taught to teach meditation, what we have to be really aware of that meditation can be really activating. Meditation can really bring up strong, strong habits. It can bring up strong memories of the past. And so we think, oh, we'll teach this meditation. And then there's no dialogue after. 
And so it's really important, actually, that when we lead a meditation like this, it's to give space for people to talk about their experience, to to go into what I would say inquiry into somebody's meditation. From a Buddhist perspective, we would call that direct pointing. From a therapeutic perspective, we would call it compassionate inquiry. So it's and then it it depends what context I if I'm teaching meditation to people who are meditators, then they have their ways of working and we'd have meditation interviews. But often I'm teaching meditation to people who are struggling with trauma, struggling with addiction. So it would be a whole compassionate inquiry into their experience. What what's happening, what what's happening in the body and really being present to whatever is arising in that person's experience. So it's it's every everybody is unique. So I I really can't give a blanket answer to the question because everybody is unique and I have a tool bag to really help somebody um in terms of what is being activated and then right now Jeff and Tasha I it's look at what's happening in in our world here if we think of coronavirus and people just completely flung out of the nest this whole uncertainty the the great fear the fear of dying i mean the fear of dying has always been there but the fear of dying has really become quite explicit yeah and all of us will have a group of friends and there is a range of how people are right now with their connection and relationship to covid-19 i i kind of say actually it's quite fashionable now to be ocd but we do it's all on a on a spectrum i have people coming to me who are completely flipped out about the corona virus how do we teach people to breathe again which brings me to the second virus with the killing of george floyd uh, the killing of mm-hmm. eric garner even before george floyd there was eric garner who said i can't breathe mm-hmm. how do we teach bodies to breathe again yeah how do i teach black people coming into a meditation center to love and like themselves when there is so much hatred and aversion towards the fact of being housed in a black or brown body and i mean just recently with jacob blake's killing and then we have this Kyle Rittenhouse a white kid walking around with an AK47 and the police do nothing the police throw water at him don't stop him but yet we know if that kid had been housed in a black and brown body that kid would have been shot so this 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 is this is telling us that there is hatred towards the black and brown body this is this is explicit mm-hmm. so how does one work with that yeah mm-hmm. so i'd every day i you know, some people say i i won't look at the news i i work hard not to be obsessed with the news but i need to be aware of the news because that's who's walking into my center the remember in canada back east with the killings in the mosque mm-hmm. i was teaching that day that's what people were walking in with yeah and i i actually think that it's reflected really really well in in your entire body of teachings um i remember from when we were doing the mbar there were so many different um activities you know there were games that we were playing there was role playing there was so much dialogue i always remember this one practice that we did with you that was just an embodying practice you know what is happening in your body when you bring up this memory and just seeing how difficult it was for people to actually come home to the body and say oh when i'm feeling you know when i'm feeling anxious it feels like this in my stomach or like this in my chest 
so many people are just so disconnected from the body. They're elsewhere that it's it's an entire process that includes meditation, but it includes so much other work just to even come home to the reality of being in your own skin. Thank you, Tasha, for bringing up coming home to the body. It's one of my my slogans, one of my mantras of coming home to the body, because many people are not home in the body. They fled the body in childhood. All mm-hmm. sense doors closed down. Yeah. All feelings switched off. Yeah. And so again, coming back to that question, how do I work with people? My intention is to bring somebody back home to the body. But that might not be the place I begin. I might be beginning in the place of actions that are taking them away from the body or at the place of emotions or at the place of thinking at thoughts. But somehow we have to bring the person back home to the body and just know that that is the safest place to be. I mean, that's being ripped away from people. But actually, at the end of the day, we can relearn the safety of being in the body because the body has alarm bells. It will tell us when we're at risk. It will tell us when we're activated. But if we're not at home in the body, we will miss those cues and we will end up picking up our choice of addiction. I mean, there are studies to show that uh, women or, or men or, or any gender who was sexually assaulted, many of them will tell you that there was something in the body, but they didn't listen to it. And mm. if they had listened to it, they may have done something different. It's like, this is the way I always walk home. You get this sensation in the body which says something isn't right here, but you don't listen to it because this is the way I'm going to walk home and something happens. Yeah. But if we listen to it and might think, actually, maybe I should do something different. Maybe I should go a different way. Maybe I should go the long way home where there are bright lights. Yeah. This is why it's so Mm. important to come home to the body. It can save our lives. And so part of what you teach then is just showing people how we continually override those subtle signals and we don't even maybe realize it. It's like, what have we been, what have we been overriding for all these years of our life? What have we not been paying attention to? Let's pause and see what, what's actually here. So is, I was just going to ask about the addiction piece. If you see that as a, a form of overriding, of course, and I'm quite deep before I answer that question. And the reason I'm quite deep is, again, if you think of some of the public lynchings of black people, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's just not even enough. It's like you can listen to the body, you can do everything the police tells you to do, and there's still not enough, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's just, I'm just really quite deep with that. Hmm. Um, In terms of your question, yeah, addiction is an adaptation. We all have adaptations. And I want to say it's on a spectrum that all of us have some kind of addictive Mm -hmm. habits. For some people, it's a matter of life and death. And, you know, for some people we manage, but it's, it's all on that spectrum. And of course, we have these adaptive behaviors to move away from the pain, to move away from the sadness. And of course, it's a bit like a a dog chasing its tail because we want to override and move away from the sadness, but it just recreates more sadness in the long term. Mm. Yeah, I found that really interesting, you know, when we were doing the MBAR as well, is inviting people to find what their addiction is. And I think even just the term, there's so much societal stigma around just the term itself, that people are very much like, oh, I don't have an addiction. That's for someone else. That's, you know, for people who are who drink too much or who do drugs or whatever. And so there's this hard line drawn in the sand. And just the teasing, the teasing out of, you know, well, first of all, you know, destigmatizing that, but just finding the ways in which 
we all have addictions. What is your addictive behavior? You know, for me, it's like overthinking. I, I can, mm. I can sit by myself and think and philosophize for hours on end. And then I don't realize that it's addictive behavior until I try to stop and I can't, you know, or like it's that it's, it's fun for me to just sit around and think forever. And unless you look at that as some kind of a behavior that, you know, is what is it taking you away from? What are you not enjoying or, or not seeing when you're, when you're compulsively engaged in that, but we're in a society where that doesn't sound like an addiction. That sounds, uh, that sounds smart or something like that, you know? <laughs> so even just being able to look at all of our behaviors and, and tease the stigma away from it and, and find the humanity in all of, all of those actions. Yeah. Thank you for uh, raising what is addiction because we know from the diagnostic manual, the Bible on addiction <laughs> And finally, gambling has been added, but it's alcohol, drugs and, and gambling. And, and of course, addiction is so much uh, broader than that. Some people might think, oh, well, you know, overthinking, how can that be an addiction? In fact, when I co-wrote the book, Eight Step Recovery, Using the Buddha's Teachings to Overcome Addiction, I co-wrote it with uh, Paramabandhu, who was a top psychiatrist in the National Health Service in England, specializing in, in addictions. And when we use said, you know, I want to speak about stinking thinking as an addiction, he said, this was the only time we, we had a bit of tension, because it was a beautiful piece of work that we, we did together. And he just said, I can't do that. It's, it's I'll be the laughing stock of my discipline, of my expertise, you know, people won't take me seriously. And I, I said to Paramabandu and I looked him in the eye and I, and I just said, stinking thinking is a matter of life and death. You know, it's the cause of, uh, of ra road rage. It's the cause of domestic violence, sexual assault. It's the cause of some people taking their life. Yeah. So let's get real about this. And actually, in, in spiritual terms, we, we would talk about the addiction to the self, that we are addicted to these identities, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Wow, I can really relate to that. I have, my addiction is um, also, like Tasha, the overthinking, but there's also a sense in which when life gets hard, I just retreat into my books. You know, I'm gonna, I just got to go read this escapist narrative or see this thing and and it took me a while to realize that was a kind of addictive behavior because it was also a coping strategy. So it, it seems it's like if you're in, in order to face your addictive behaviors, there's a kind of middle period of recognizing the value of them to a certain degree as a coping strategy and then learning how to like maybe live without them to kind of titrating yourself off it. Or does that sound familiar for the way, way which you would work? I guess it depends on the addiction itself, but it does. And, and in a way, Firstly, it's for people to actually recognize that their habits is causing them misery. This is the way I go. It's like, well, if you're happy with what you're doing, fine. You know, if, it, if it's causing misery, then maybe you need to do something. It's, it's like the cell phone. People say, well, I'm not addicted to the cell phone. Actually, the cell phone can cause is a matter of life and death because some people are so addicted to it, they'll be driving and looking at their cell phone and bang, they're in a car accident. This is a, the thing. So for me, it really is what, what, what are you prepared to let go of and what aren't you prepared to let go of? Yeah. Well. I'm a sponge for good quotes and I remember from our time together, from Lasara, you told us this thing that I don't know if what culture this was from, but that shaman have these four questions that they ask someone when they're physically or mentally ill. Do you remember telling us this? Yes, yes. For the four questions, and I just remember them landing so hard. And it's it's the kind of you know you can ask these four questions to yourself every mm. day. But mm. I'd love if you shared those. Sure. It's, I, let's firstly say that all cultures have had shamans. It's just that in some cultures we've lost the um, idea of shaman. In fact, I would say that the Buddha would have been seen as a shaman. Okay. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. People mm. went to the, to the Buddha when they were spiritually, mentally, physically ill, 
hoping that the Buddha would be able to give some teaching, some medicine. So there is a teaching of the shaman, and it's a debatable where this teaching comes from. Sometimes if you look on the net, it will be from the Latin America region. And recently I've seen it's like the African continent has claimed it. And actually, where does anything come from? Actually, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, we all want to appropriate and say, I was the person who invented this. And uh, I, I come back to, to the Buddha, to the prince, like the, the prince really became woke by meditating. It came from his inner experience. And that's how we become woke. It's from our inner experience. So it's all there. It's all there. If, if you think of the Kashyyyk, uh, records, you know, in the Akashic records, it's said that every thought, every memory is up there in the Akashic records. But coming back to your question, what are these four questions? And I've added a, a fifth question. So the question would be, when did you stop singing? Which is such a, a beautiful question. And we can take this on a literal level. When did we stop singing? But to think out of the box and take it on more the metaphorical level. When did you stop singing? When did you lose your voice? You know, when did you stop speaking? You know, when a when a when a parent says, "Shut up," or "I'll give you something to cry for." That's one of the places you stop singing. Yeah. The second question is, when did you stop dancing? Again. We could take this on a, a literal level, but again, on a metaphorical level. When did you lose that play? When did you stop being a child? Some kids have to grow up very quickly because a, a parent left or there was a death and they had to start taking care of the younger siblings. Or it could have been a boy child dressing up in what we identify as female clothing why it's called female clothing but the reality is a boy wants to put this clothing on and they're told stop being a city and they're beaten by their parents or they're mm. chastised by their parents and people laugh at them this is where where you lose the dance or for a female moving into puberty and people talking about her body or looking at her body or even younger than that, a child being sexually assaulted, sexually abused, one will lose the dance, the play of life. The third question is, when did you stop being enchanted by your own story? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And many people have blocked off. They, they tell you, I can't remember my childhood. I can't remember before the age of five or before the age of 10. They blocked off. So you know that there was trauma because they had to block off. Or somebody like me, I used to say I had a really happy childhood. This is somebody who stopped being enchanted by their own story. I had to tell you I had a happy childhood to hold on to some of those few happy things because my childhood was so traumatic. Mm -hmm. The fourth question is, when did you stop being able to dwell in the sweet territory of silence? Mm -hmm. And so many of us are assailed by this overthinking, by this stinking thinking. Yeah. When did we stop being able to dwell in this sweet territory of silence? And for me, that's the intersectionality of mindfulness. I mean, it, this, this whole teaching is mindfulness. And I will say the, the, the fifth question I add is, when did you stop breathing? Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. when we tense up, we stop breathing. Did you stop breathing when a parent came in smelling of alcohol and raging did you stop breathing when you witnessed adults fighting with each other did you stop breathing when you were touched inappropriately mm. so these are the questions of the shaman wow they're so so many. yeah right <laughs> i mean you know by those by that criteria i feel like three quarters of the people I know would answer 
all of them, that's true for all of they stop doing all those things. And, and sometimes they've had specific explicit traumas, but often sometimes it's just a long, slow beat down or maybe a ramping up of needing to just go so fast to keep up with everything in the overwhelm. And there's a kind of deadening and speedening that happens simultaneously. And all those things drop out one by mm-hmm. one until they're not breathing and they're not quiet and they never dance and they don't and they don't sing. Absolutely. You know. I think that's the why those those five questions hit so hard is because it's ubiquitous. Like I can I can feel them in my own life. I can see them all around me. And it's so simple. It's almost like, you know, everyone's running to doctors and looking for, you know, different sleeping aids and happy pills and whatever. And it's like, let's first connect to these four five questions and find the source or at least, you know, acknowledge that they're happening for us. I want to say is Jeff, do you have any last kind of questions or directions you want to take? No, just just appreciation. I so enjoyed this conversation and just went in some interesting directions and you know, just very grateful for what you offer in the world and thanks for coming on our podcast. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you to both of you. It's really nice to be able to connect again and and sit in meditation with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure.